Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wa al-mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. 
So alhamdulillah, um, thank you guys for joining me again for um, another discussion from our Ramadan series, The Life and Trial of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. So in our last discussion, uh, we had arrived at the portion of this uh, discussion where Imam Ahmed was being lashed, was being whipped. Um, on the orders of Mu'tasim. Mu'tasim was the uh, second of the children of Harun al-Rashid, the first being Ma'mun ibn Harun al-Rashid, and then his brother took over after him, al-Mu'tasim. Uh, Mu'tasim had Imam Ahmed sent from Muraqqa, from Syria, all the way back to Baghdad, put into prison, and he... Uh, begin to question Imam Ahmed. Uh, he's doing this in a public yet private circle. People were allowed to enter. People were charged money to enter to witness uh, this great Imam be tortured in public for not saying that the Quran, the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was not created. Imam Ahmed, ta'ala, as we left off, uh, he was uh, discussing how he was lashed, how he was whipped. All right, he said that the first time that he was struck, the first time he was hit across his back, he said Bismillah. The second time he was hit across his back, he said La hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. The third time he was hit across his back, he said that the Quran, uh, reaffirming his aqidah, you know, even under this immense pressure, under this type of torture. He's still reaffirming his aqidah, and that is that the Qur'an is the book of Allah, and it is not created. And then the fourth time he was struck across his back, uh, he quoted the ayat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, yusibuna illa ma lana, huwa Say, O Muhammad, that we cannot, nothing will befall us except what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already decreed for us. So we now arrive at, and this happened over a period of four days, uh, the trial of Imam Ahmed, ta'ala. this happened over a period of four days. So they would bring him out, question him, he would stand firm on his questioning, they would lash him, beat him, put him back in the prison, they would bring him out the next day. So this happened over a period of four days, all right? This didn't happen all in one day, all right? They were trying to break him, okay? Um, قال حدثنا أبو فضل البغدادي قال قال لي حنبل لما ضرب ابن عمي انكسرت له قطعة قطعة من عظام ضلعه وكنا لا نجسر أن نداويه مخافة أن يكون في الدواء شيء من السموم that uh, one of the uh, the nephew of Imam Ahmed he's narrating this uh, narration he said when my uncle was beat for not saying that the Quran was created, when my uncle was beat, uh, one of his ribs was broken. They broke one of his ribs. That's how hard they were hitting him. All right. They broke one of his ribs. And he said that we wouldn't dare give him any of, uh, any of the medicine that they had available because we fear that in the medicine would have been poison. All right. We feared that it would have been poison in the medicine. So we never gave Imam Ahmed some of the medicine that, you know, came from the state. And I want you guys to pay attention to that. 
I want you guys to pay attention to that. Imam Ahmed's uncle said, um, we never gave Imam Ahmed, even after he was beaten, even after he was bloody, even after his back was tore up, even after his ribs were broken, we never gave him any of the medicine that was provided by the state. Because we feared, we wouldn't dare give him any of the medicine from the state because we feared that there would have been poison in it. You understand? I hope you guys are listening. Said so we would have never given him, we wouldn't dare give him any of the medicine that was provided by the state out of fear that there may have been poison in it. Yeah. Even them, they, they, they knew back then that if the leadership is corrupt, if the leadership is corrupt, as they say, that after a person has decided upon a path of disbelief to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can expect anything from them. You can expect anything from them. So if you're dealing with a corrupt government, then why would you be so willingly, you know, so, you know, willingly gullible enough to believe as, subhanAllah, as I said, you know, some some months ago about the COVID vaccine, and I had someone, you know, very naively comment and say, well, why would the government poison us? And it's just like, really? Why would the government poison us? The only person that could say something like that is a person who is just extremely, possibly innocently ignorant, <laughs> or someone who's speaking from a pure place of privilege. <laughs> no, taking medicine does not go against our faith. Taking, um, taking medicine does not contradict Iman. That is a farce. Please get that out of your head. Taking medicine does not contradict faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As a matter of fact, Allah subhanahu the Prophet sallallahu said that Allah did not send down any disease except that he sent down a cure. Allah did not send down any disease except that he sent down a cure. So our religion is not anti-medicine. We are not anti-medicine. We are not against medicine. We are not against vaccinations. What we are against is putting things into our body that number one, we don't know what it is, and number two, uh, may may possibly make us sick. And number three, to be gullible. Our religion prohibits us from being gullible and to be naive. The Prophet sallallahu said, The believer is not stung in the same hole twice. If you've seen that a government, a whole government, your government, the U.S. government, the U.S. government, through the Tuskegee experiment and many the AIDS experiment and, and many other experiments that have been done on black folk. If you've seen this before, then why would you not be cautious? You see, uh, foreign Muslims, whether Pakistani, you know, or East Indian, um, Arab, they speak from a place of privilege. When they look at as Afri African Americans as you know conspiracy because everything now is a conspiracy theory. So now when you use just a little bit of your intellect, they autom they automatically accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist. 
It's not conspiracy theory genius is if the person has a track record, if they have a history of poisoning people. This is not to mention what has been done here on our own territory here in America. This is not to mention what has been done in different parts of Africa and other parts of the world. You understand? Other parts of the world, documented, known facts. And then you have the audacity to say, why would our government why would our government poison us? It's like, are you serious? Either you're saying that because you are just sincerely ignorant or you are speaking from a place of privilege. Speaking from a place of privilege, meaning you Pakistanis or Arabs or any other group of people, uh, ethnic group of people, have the privilege of saying, just take the vaccination. What you know? Why would our government poison us? They have the privilege of saying that because they have never been tested on. They have no tests have never been done on them as a group. They have never been. You know, we're talking about the prison industrial complex, where they are. You know, poisoning. Even they're giving. You know, kids. I remember being incarcerated as a juvenile in juvie. And you had young children as as young as 13, 14, 15 years old, right? On high, high off of their mind, off of Thorazine, right? Thorazine, they would they would put it in the Kool-Aid. They would put it literally in the Kool-Aid. And anybody who was smart enough to know that in Juvie you didn't drink the Kool-Aid because it was so, it was extremely sweet extremely sweet and you had a lot of young children in there obviously that you know parents you know did not educate them they they weren't aware they weren't woke enough to understand and these children are literally walking around the youth house like zombies man literally walking around the youth house walking around the juvenile institutional system like zombies spazzing out and, and fighting for no reason and biting on their nails. I mean, like this stuff is real, man. And they're giving and they go up and then it kind of like brings them, it calms them down and they almost become like, you know, subhanAllah. It, it's real, it's real. So when you say, oh, well, why would a government do that? Why would they need to do that? Well, you say that from a place of privilege because you have never been the test tube baby. You have never been the lab rat. <laughs> you have never been the lab rat. You understand? So you could say that. But those of us who have had that experience, you know, as I said to one Palestinian brother, we were having a conversation. It's like, you know, well, why you guys, you know, why don't you advocate for the vaccination? And I said, well, first of all, you have to understand we're Muslim, but I'm African-American. All right. So we have a different history with America. It's the same type of relationship we have with law enforcement. We have a different relationship with law enforcement than you and your community have with law enforcement. We have a different relationship with America than you have with America. America welcomed you in as refugees. They gave you loans. They gave you businesses. They gave you, you know, they set you up really nicely. They, they set you up real nicely. And that puts you in a position to say, well, as African-Americans, you guys have been here for the for longer than refugees have been here and you guys still don't have anything. You can say that from a place of privilege because you don't understand all of the red tape, all of the yellow tape, all of the obstacles, all of the hindrances that have been systematically put in place to keep us exactly where we are right now.
So you say that from a place of privilege, or my father migrated here, or my, my father immigrated here from this country or that country, and he was poor, and he didn't have anything, and, you know, and, and he worked his behind off, and, you know, he worked, and, you know, because that's what they make it seem like. It's just about work, right? It's just about work. <laughs> that's all you got to do is work hard, right? That's the farce. That's the lie that they teach you, right? All you got to do is work hard, right? And then they accept that. So now they look at African-Americans as lazy. We are the hardest working people on the planet. Next to ants, who is a harder working nation of people, group of people other than African-Americans? Like next to ants, we are the hardest working people in the world. You know what I mean? Like, like the moment we start to demand compensation for our work, then it becomes problematic. But as long as we're working for free, even in the Muslim community, when you invite me to your community and you set, pat me on the back and you say, Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah khairan, brother. And I say, no, not Jazakallah khairan, but you know, I, I need compensation for my time, for my energy, from the time that I take away from my kids. Then it's like, it's a, pro it's a problem now. But as long as we're working for free, it's fine. As long as our great great grandparents are in the cornfields and picking corn and picking cotton and they're doing that for free, it's fine. We wasn't lazy then. Were we lazy then? When we were building everything that we didn't have the wherewithal to get patent and to call our own, like the telephone, like the light bulb, and all of these other creations that America and has capitalized off of because we didn't have the wherewithal, we didn't have the provision in place to patent these things so we can have ownership of these things. You understand? We, we weren't lazy then when we were picking cotton. We weren't lazy, but the moment we start to demand compensation for our work, now all of a sudden it's problematic. You got to understand, man, like, you know, so the point that I'm making is that so when Muslims get into these conversations like, oh, well, my father immigrated here, he didn't have anything and he's, you know, he worked his butt off and, you know, he put us all through college and now he's living comfortably. Yeah, because those obstacles that you know were designed to keep us where we are those ob obstacles didn't exist for you guys those obstacles didn't exist for you guys you walked right in here with not a dime to your name and you went into the bank and you got a loan you opened up a business in the black neighborhood <laughs> i mean isn't it a coincidence that you can open up a, a shop as an arab as an asian you know like you can open up a shop in the black neighborhood, number one, your shop is probably not going to be robbed. Number two, you it's going to be very easy for you to get a bank, get a loan from the bank. Number three, you will have all of what you need. And then you move into this black neighborhood with all of these black people here and you say to yourself, well, why haven't any of them opened up any stores? Does that thought ever cross your mind? Do you ever stop to say to yourself, why is it so easy for an Asian, an Arab to open up a store or corner store, open up, and you got all these black people who've been here for generations and none of them have opened up a store. That's not a coincidence. There's, there's a reason for that. And it's not laziness. <laughs> Has nothing to do with us being lazy. But back to my point, um, Imam Ahmed's nephew, he said, 
we would we would have never dared to give him any of the medicine provided by the state out of fear that there might have been poison in uh in the in the medicine subhanallah just i just wanted to kind of make a, a a point there because it seems like that was so relevant <laughs> it's so relevant to what we're talking about right you know what we're going through right now in in the times of covid right so he said, فَلَمَّا نَظَرَ إِلَى حَتَّى وُصِفَ لَنَا بِالْبَصْرَ مُتَطَبِّبْ صَالِحٌ فَجِئْنَا بِهِ فَلَمَّا نَظَرَ إِلَى الْكَسْرَ وَإِلَى وَإِذَا الْإِضَامِ مُتَعَلَّقْ بِالْلَحْمَ الْمَفْسُودِ فَجَذَبَهُ الطَّبِيبِ أَسْنَانِهِ فَانْجَذَبَ وَغُشِيَ عَلَيْهِ So it was mentioned to the nephew of Imam Ahmed, someone mentioned to him, described to him a doctor, a righteous doctor. Listen, <laughs> he said, that it was described to us uh, a, a righteous doctor who lived in Basra, not too far from Baghdad. Basra, there was a righteous doctor that was described to us that lived in Baghdad. So we went to the righteous doctor, pay attention. You understand? They didn't take the medicine that was provided by the state out of fear that it may have been poison in it. Number two, they went to an independent doctor, did not work for the state, an independent doctor who was righteous, known for his piety and righteousness. That means that if a person is going to be a doctor and work in that field, then there should be some level of, there should be a moral compass attached to the person's, you know, persona. They should, there should be a moral compass there. There should be a spiritual compass there. The person should operate with the fear of God. Not that you just, you know, giving people medications willy-nilly because you are basically a drug dealer for the state because that's what many physicians, that's what many doctors are. You are drug dealers for the state. If you are a doctor, you are a nurse, you work in a hospital, you see things that are wrong, things that make you go against your moral conscience every single day and you still get up, you go to work for that same institution every single day. You are part of the problem. You are part of the problem because you see this stuff in the hospital and you turn a blind eye to it because you need a paycheck. You need a paycheck. How do you live with yourself? How do you get up and go into the hospital every single day under the guise of saving lives? You see the stuff that goes on in the hospital and you still get up and, you know, I get it. You might hate it in your heart. That's the weakest level of faith. But at the same token, is it's like that's where you're earning your money from. That's where you're earning your money from. You are a drug dealer on behalf of the state. You are a drug dealer on behalf of the state. The first thing they do when you come in is, you know, antibiotics or this. They want to write you a prescription. That's the solution for everything is to write you a prescription. Why? Because they got to get rid of those drugs. <laughs> they got to get rid of the drugs. I mean, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Some medical professionals do speak up. Yes, and they get fired. And they get fired. Yes, they do like the African-American woman who spoke up and tried to go independent and they banned her from even practicing in America. They banned her from practicing in America. 
you know who I'm talking about? Can somebody post the name of the sister? African-American woman. I forget her. I'm forgetting her name. And they banned her from even practicing in America. That is the that is the end result of practitioners speaking up. Dr. CB, you understand? Speaking up. And look what happened to him. It says, so it was described to us a doctor, a righteous doctor, mutatabib, salihan, a righteous doctor who lived in Basra. And we went to the righteous doctor uh, and we took Imam Ahmed you know, to the righteous doctor to let him look at Imam Ahmed's back, let him look at the broken ribs that he had. Um, he said when the doctor looked at his back and he saw that one of the ribs was uh, kind of connected or connected to the skin, uh, he took his tooth, his teeth, and he bit the skin off to separate it from the bone and Imam Ahmed, you know, literally fell unconscious. Imam Ahmed fell unconscious. He said, and when Imam Ahmed regained consciousness, I could hear him faintly saying, underneath his breath, I could hear him saying, he was mummering dua. He said, Allahumma la tu'akhidhum. Allahumma la tu'akhidhum. I could hear him mummering underneath his breath when he regained consciousness. And he says, oh Allah, don't hold them accountable. Oh Allah, don't hold them accountable. Oh Allah, don't hold them accountable. فَلَمَّا بَرِئَ قُلْتُ سَمِعْتُكَ تَقُولُ وَذَكْرَ مَا قَالَ قَالَ نَعَمْ أَحْبَبْتُ أَنْ أَلْقَ اللَّهَ جَلَّ وَعَلَى وَلَيْسَ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَ قَرَابَةِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ شَيْءٌ وَقَدْ جَعَلْتُهُ فِي حِلٍّ إِلَّا إِبْنَ أَبِي دُعَادٍ وَمَنْ كَانَ مِثْلَهُ فَإِنِّي لَا أَجْعَلُهُمْ فِي حِلٍّ When Imam Ahmed regained consciousness. His nephew said, I could hear him mummering. I can hear him mummering underneath his breath. He's making dua underneath his, his breath. And he says, Allahumma la tu'akhidhum. Allahumma la tu'akhidhum. Oh Allah, don't hold them accountable. Oh Allah, don't hold them accountable. And he's, his nephew said, I went to him and I said, I heard you mummering something before you fell unconscious. I, I heard you saying something, you're making dua. And you were saying, don't hold them accountable. What did you mean by that? Listen to what he said. Imam Ahmed said, yes. أَحْبَبْتُ أَنْ أَلْقَ اللَّهُ وَلَيْسَ بَيْنِي وَبَيْنَ قَرَابَةِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ He said, yes, I'm making dua that Allah forgive Mu'tasim. Forgive the leader of the Muslims for what he did to me. I'm making dua that Allah forgive him for what he did to me. He said, because I don't want to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala having anything in my heart for anyone that belongs to the family of the Prophet sallallahu Ma'moon, um, Harun, their father, Harun or Rashid, they were all from the, the great, great, great grandchildren of Abdullah ibn Abbas, the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu That's why their dynasty was called the Abbasid dynasty. They were from the family of Abdullah ibn Abbas. They were from the relatives, the descendants of Abdullah ibn Abbas. And Imam Ahmed said that I... Because of my love for the Prophet Sallallahu I'm asking Allah to forgive them because I don't want to meet Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala having anything in my heart for anyone who belongs to the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Talk about love for the Prophet Sallallahu Talk about love for the Prophet Sallallahu He said I didn't want to meet Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala having anything in my chest for anyone from the family of the Prophet Sallallahu So I'm making du'a that Allah forgive him. He's at the doctor. 
patching up his wounds, fixing his broken ribs that was on the order of Mu'tasim, the leader of the Muslims. And here he is making dua that Allah forgive them. He said, except Ahmed ibn Abi Du'ad, Bishr al-Mirisi, Ishaq ibn Ibrahim, he said, for them, I don't forgive them. For them, I don't forgive them. And these were the people, the Mu'tazila, these were the people, Ahlul Bid'ah, these were the people of innovation who started this philosophy, who introduced this philosophy to the leader of the Muslims. SubhanAllah. So Imam Ahmed made a distinction between, you know, Mu'tasim who was who was preyed upon by this deviant group of people and carried out their wishes unknowingly, un, unbeknownst to him that, you know, they were wrong. Just sincere ignorance. Sincere ignorance. He just calls himself trying to be sincere, but he doesn't really realize that he's being preyed upon. He doesn't realize that he's being taken advantage of. He said, however, Ahmed ibn Abi Du'ad, uh, Bishr Mirisi, uh, Ibrahim ibn Ishaq, Ishaq ibn Ibrahim, he said, them, I don't forgive them. Rather, I will meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want to stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I want Allah to ask me, why did they beat me? Why did they have me whipped? Why did they have me beat? For them, I don't forgive. And it shows you his karaha. It shows you his maqt. It shows you his hatred for the people of innovation. And it also shows you that when we punish or, or when we you know, extract retribution, that we do that justly. He made a distinction. You understand? He made a distinction between the leader of the Muslims who was preyed upon and those individuals, those grimy individuals who were behind, who were really behind this whole ordeal. He made a distinction. And it reminds me of a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ, you know, he mentioned about a prophet. And from the adab of the Prophet ﷺ, he never mentioned who this prophet was. In the hadith, for the respect, out of respect for that prophet who this happened to, the Prophet ﷺ, when he narrated this hadith to us, he never said who the prophet was. He never mentioned his name. He said, "Innama namlatun qarasat nabiyan min al-anbiya fa'amra bi." Uh, he said that a, a prophet from amongst the prophets he never mentioned his name right because what he's about to mention is in a in a blameworthy fashion and you know he wants to preserve the honor and that that shows us that when you want to mention a story you can you know omit the names of the people to make your point you don't have to mention the name of the people to make your point the point is still the point the names are irrelevant. You don't have to throw somebody's name out there like that. And this is for us to be mindful. You want to tell a story of something that happened between a brother or a sister that, you know, an incident that happened because there's a moral to that story. You can mention the story without mentioning the person's name because by mentioning the person's name, number one, it may be backbiting. Number two, it may be embarrassing you know, to that person, because once you tell that story and the people know who you're talking about, it may be hard for them to look at him the same afterwards. Be mindful. You can tell a story without mentioning the names to get the point of the story. The moral of the story does not have to be contingent on the names of the people in the story. It doesn't, it's not contingent. The Prophet ﷺ said that an ant bit one of the prophets from the prophets of old. He bit 
a prophet from the prophets of old. He laid down by a tree to relax and an ant bit him on his hand. So he ordered that the whole ant colony be set ablaze, burn the whole ant colony. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to that prophet, a qarasatka, qarasatka namlatun fa'ahlakta ummatan min al-umam tusabbih fa'halla namlatan wahida. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to this prophet that one ant bit you, so you burnt up the whole ant colony, you destroyed the whole entire nation of creation that served, that worshiped me. And another narration, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Why didn't you just hold accountable the one ant that bit you? Why destroy the whole nation? Why destroy the whole colony of ants that served me, that worshiped me? Why not hold the ant, the, the ant accountable that bit you? And that the lesson in that is that we have to be mindful when we are extracting retribution and we're coming down with punishment on people. We live in a society that when a person is angry and upset, they set the whole house on fire, the whole block on fire. You get into a fight with one person, you come back with a gun and you shoot the person, you shoot his mother, you shoot his father, you shoot his daughter, you shoot his three-year-old kid. This anger, man, subhanAllah, man. This generational frustration and anger that we are carrying with us generation after generation, passing it on to our children, our grandchildren. When do we teach our families? When do we teach the people that live in our homes the value of forgiveness? If you never saw forgiveness, then you don't have a concept of it. This is a learned behavior. This is a learned behavior. They grow up, these young boys, they grow up in homes and they are beat for the smallest little infractions. The punishments are never fair. The punishments are never just. There's no explanation. We run homes like dictatorships. I beat you, don't do it again. There's no lesson in that, no lesson learned, no remorse. There's no accountability, no justifiable accountability. It's just beat you until I, as the parent, feel that justice has been served. No explanation, no nothing. And then those same children go out into the world. And so we're wondering why there's so much murder in Philadelphia. We're wondering why three, four, five-year-old children are being shot, seven-year-old children are being shot. We are dealing with a society of teenage boys or young adult men who have no concept of mercy and compassion. And you know who is responsible for that? You know who is responsible for that? The homes from which they emerged. the homes from which they emerged. We are products of our immediate environment. Products of our immediate environment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالْبَلَدُ الطَّيِّبُ يَخْرُجُ نَبَاتُهُ بِإِذْنِ رَبِّ وَالَّذِي خَبُثَ لَا يَخْرُجُ إِلَّا نَكِدًا لَا يَخْرُجُ إِلَّا نَكِدًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, and the land that is fertile, the fertile land, produces its produce, produces its fruits and vegetables by the permission of its Lord all the time. 
because the land is fertile, it's healthy. The fruits and vegetables are products of the land that it was planted in. And the land that is not fertile, the land, the soil is corrupt, is hard, it gets no sun, it gets no water, gets no sunlight, just hard. It produces its fruit sparsely, scarcely, barely, it's barely any fruit there. Because look at the land from which it is nurtured. We can't complain about the, the astronomical rates of murder that are going on in the inner cities and not hold the homes in which these young boys are coming from, not holding them accountable. Because if these young boys came from homes where parents gave them mercy, where there were fathers present, there were mothers present, because mothers may be physically present, but they are emotionally unavailable. Don't sit here and condemn the father for not being there. You wasn't there either. You were emotionally unavailable. Don't sit here and condemn the father. Oh, your father was never around. So the father being absent is the reason why this boy turned out like that. What about the parent that was there with him? What about the parent that was there? You steady putting all of the blame on the parent that wasn't there. But the boy still turned out to be a monster. So what does that say for the parent that was there? You're physically available, but emotionally unavailable. You're too busy chasing a boyfriend. You're too busy chasing a husband. Relationship after relationship after relationship. Meanwhile, the lives of your children are passing you by every single day. This goes for brothers as well as sisters. Brothers as well as sisters. Brothers are chasing second wives, third wives, and while you on this hamster wheel, chasing the second and third wife, year after year after year is passing your children by that you will never be able to get that back. You on the hamster wheel, brother, get off the hamster wheel. Focus on what's important. Those years of your children's life, you can never get that back. You still looking for a second wife. You ever see brothers, you run into them. Every time you run into them, he looking for another wife. So I've been knowing you for 10 years. And every time I run into you, you looking for another wife. Never satisfied. That hole can never be filled, man. You got to understand that you're dealing with a hole that you are trying to fill that void. But you're filling it with the wrong stuff, man. You're filling it with the wrong stuff, man. And you will never be satisfied. It's almost like a crackhead who takes one hit of crack and spends the next 30 years of their lives chasing that high. Chasing that high. Same thing with the sisters. Chasing that high, man. You're determined to have you a good marriage. You're determined to get the ring. You're determined to come in front of your group of sisters and say, I'm married. You're determined to have that situation that you've had in your mind since you were nine years old. You're determined to have that. 
and you go through relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship chasing that image that you have in your mind that only exists to you, doesn't exist to anybody else. It's only real to you. And you're going to keep chasing until you get it. And you don't care how many children you have to sacrifice. You don't care how much of your soul you have to sacrifice. You're going to get it. But our children, mercy and forgiveness is a learn is a is a is an acquired quality. It's a learned behavior. It's not something that children automatically come out the womb understanding. Children can be very cold for different reasons. When we teach them mercy, we teach them compassion, they break something and they turn around and they look at us because they know they're about to get in trouble. And you say, okay, all right, you broke it. All right, just clean it up. Fix it. Clean up what you broke. You're showing them mercy. You're showing them that I don't have to punish you every time that you do something wrong. I don't have to hold you accountable for every time you wrong me. This is teaching the child mercy, compassion, understanding. If we ever want this environment out here to change, the homes have to change. The homes have to change, man. Nonetheless, Imam Ahmed said, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive them. I don't want to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala having anything in my heart for the leader of the Muslims who has a relationship with the Prophet He said, but as for Ibn Abi Du'ad and Ishaq ibn Ibrahim and, and Bishr and Mirisi, I don't forgive them. I don't forgive them. All right? And that shows you his hatred for the people of innovation. His hatred for people of bid'ah. All right? Qala Salih ibn Ahmed, ibn Ahmed's son, Salih, he said, Qala li Abi, my father said to me, Kana aqli ma'i ila thamaniyatin wa thalathina sawta. Thumma lam adri ayna kuntu dhahaba qad dhahaba aqli. Salih, the son of Imam Ahmed, he said to his, his cousin, uh, -Abbas, uh, Abu Abbas, Harun ibn Abi Abbas, he said, uh, Salih said to me that his father, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, said to him that when I was being beat, my aql, my intellect was still with me when I was being lashed, when I was being beat. Until I got to the 38th hit, I was hit 38 times. By the time we got to 38 lashes, I didn't even know where I was. My intellect had left me. I was gone. That's how many times he was beat. He was beat 38 times. Figure. He was lashed 38 times across his back. He had broken ribs. He had flesh that had to be removed, dead flesh that had to be removed from his back. You understand? You know how a person gets lashed or whooped with a with a with a whip and it cuts so deeply into the skin and the skin is like keloid. So it starts to bubble up. It's like a person who gets cut with a razor. You get cut, you get sliced with a razor, that razor it, it bubbles up. This is what they used to say back in the day, a buck fifty across the face, right? They slash you across your face, and that slash doesn't heal like a normal healing. That cut heals like a bubble across your face. 
That's the same thing that the lashes, the whip does across the back. So Imam Ahmed had dead skin on his back that the doctor literally had to cut off of his back. 38 times he was hit. He said, by the 38th time, my aqal, my intellect was gone. I didn't even remember where I was. Bishr ibn Hadith. Bishr ibn Hadith was one of the contemporaries of Imam Ahmed. He was one of the scholars that Imam Ahmed revered and had a lot of respect for. Bishr ibn Hadith, he said, لا أقوى عليه إن أحمد ابن حنبل قام مقام الأنبياء. It was said to قيل لبشر حين ضرب أحمد لو كنت وتكلمت كما تكلم تكلم أحمد بن حنبل فقال بشر بن حارث لا أقوى على هذا إن أحمد بن حنبل قام مقام الأنبياء. It was said to Bishr ibn Harith, um, if you were in the situation that Imam Ahmed was in, would you have said what Imam Ahmed said? Would you have had the ability to stand firm the way that Imam Ahmed did? And Bishr ibn Harith, he said, no, I would not have had the strength to do what Imam Ahmed did. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, qama maqam al-anbiya, he was on, he was on the, he was in a position from the same positions that many of the prophets and messengers were. When you look at his story, look at his situation, they likened his situation to many of the situations of the prophets and messengers. SubhanAllah. <laughs> ابن حنبل الكير فخرج ذهبا ذهبة حمراء قال علي فبلغ أحمد قول بشر فقال الحمد لله الذي رضي بشرا رضى بشرا بما صنعنا فبشر ابن هارث he said that Imam Ahmed was put into the flames and he came out gold he came out gold he was put into the flames and he came out gold. And when that statement reached Imam Ahmed, right, while he was in prison, <laughs> while he was in prison, that statement reached Imam Ahmed. And Imam Ahmed said, bishran bima sana'ana. May Allah, uh, uh, all praises due to Allah, who has made Bishr, a scholar like Bishr ibn Hadith, who has made Bishr pleased with what I have done. This is the scholars, the acknowledgement of the scholars for his effort to restore ownership of our aqidah to Ahlul Sunnah. He restored ownership of the aqidah of Islam back to Ahlul Sunnah. Unlike in today's time when scholars will condemn you for doing what's right because they couldn't do it. You have many students of knowledge, many imams, many scholars who don't have the testicular fortitude to stand up and speak truth to power, so they cower in the face of political correctness. And when some soul, some brave soul stands up and speaks truth to power, they condemn him. Oh, he shouldn't have said it like that. Oh, he shouldn't have did it like this. Oh, he shouldn't have said it like that. Oh, that was not scholarly. It's like that wasn't scholarly, but dude, you, you didn't say anything. You would, you would think that if you were silent in the face of an oppressive, a wrong action, <laughs> if you were silent and you didn't say anything, then I would like to think that if somebody finally did speak up, that you would be the last person to open your mouth 
to condemn the person for saying what they said. At least they said something. You didn't say anything. What did you say? The only thing you said was to condemn the person who actually had the audacity to stand up and say something. Blood in my eye. I mean, like, how how dare you? Where, please, somebody tell me, where did the hearts of many of these scholars and students of knowledge, man, where did they come from? I, I am just flabbergasted beyond imagination. Literally, beyond imagination. The level, the level of cowardice that exists in many of these brothers, man. SubhanAllah. The level of cowardice that exists in many of these brothers who will sit back in their own little circles and their own little huddles and condemn this one. Oh, he didn't, that wasn't scholarly enough. Oh, that wasn't academic. It's like, wasn't academic? What, what are you talking about? The response wasn't academic. It wasn't scholarly. But says the person who said nothing, says the person who said nothing, at very least, you don't say anything. You say, well, I didn't say anything, so I'm not even going to speak on the matter. <laughs> I'm not even going to speak on the matter. <laughs> but no, you have the audacity to condemn the brother for actually saying something and say that it wasn't academic or wasn't scholarly or the way he said it. It wasn't what he said, the way he said it. But you are not in a place of privilege to say that. You didn't say anything. SubhanAllah, man. Please, O oh Allah, strengthen the hearts of our scholars, our imams, our students of knowledge. Give us hearts that Give us hearts, O oh Allah, that do not fear the blame of those who sit back and find fault. Give us the hearts of those who do not fear the blame of those who find fault. Where are they at? Ain't of them. Where are those who speak truth to power? And they have no fear of the condemnation or the blame of those who find fault. Where? SubhanAllah. We hiding behind the red tape of political correctness, still wanting to be liked and wanting to be taken from and wanting to be listened to. That, that, is, that, that is what got us messed up in the first place. Because we're so worried about whether people are going to listen to us, whether people are going to take from us, whether somebody going to sit at your foot. You had scholars like Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari, when nobody sat with Bukhari. When Muhammad ibn uh, Yahya al-Dhuhli lied on Imam al-Bukhari. And people fled from around Imam al-Bukhari. Nobody sat with Imam al-Bukhari. Are you still worried about how many people are going to take from you? That's what you're worried about? There was times when nobody took from Imam al-Bukhari. There was times when nobody took from uh, uh, Muhammad ibn Salih al-Uthaymin. <laughs> is that what you're worried about? You're worried about not having followers? You're worried about who's going to take from you? You're worried about who's not going to listen to you? Who's not going to take from you? That's what you're worried about? There were scholars, there were scholars greater than you and I who people didn't take from, if that's what you worried about. There's, there was a time in Imam al-Bukhari's life when nobody took from Bukhari. He sat down to teach his sahih and nobody sat in his lesson. 
I've sat with scholars who said that I was in the lesson of Sheikh Uthaymeen and it was only me and one other person sitting in his lesson. Only two people sitting in the lesson of Sheikh Uthaymeen. And, and that's what you're worried about? You worried about acceptance? You worried about kabul? A kabul, ya habibi, indallah jalla wa'ala. Kabul, acceptance of the people belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You or I or anyone else does not control how people will gravitate to your message. That is totally in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ سَيَجْعَلُوا لَهُمُ الرَّحْمَانُ وُدَّةِ Indeed, those who believe and do righteous deeds, سَيَجْعَلُوا لَهُمُ الرَّحْمَانُ وُدَّةِ Ar-Rahman, the most merciful, will place in the hearts of the people love for him. Love for them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala muqallib al-qulub. Allah is in control of the hearts. You or I or anybody, I don't care how articulate you are. I don't care how scholarly you are. I don't care how academic you are. I don't care how much Arabic you know. I don't care how eloquent you are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls the hearts of his servants. Al-qulub al-ibad bayna usbu'ayn min asabi ar-rahman yuqallibuha kayfa yasha. That the hearts of the children of Adam are in between the two fingers of Ar-Rahman. He changes the hearts however he wills. Your job is to convey the message. Truthfully, sincerely from your heart. That's it. Your job is to convey completely and sincerely from your heart and you let Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do the rest. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu You didn't throw, O Muhammad, when you threw, but it was Allah who threw. The Prophet sallallahu took a handful of dirt and threw it and it went into the faces of over a thousand soldiers. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu you didn't throw when you threw, but it was Allah who threw. Meaning you did the action, the end result of your action was in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah controls the end result. You or I or nobody else controls the end result. It doesn't matter how politically correct you are. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are, how much Arabic you know, how much Arabic you don't know, how much Quran you've memorized, how much Quran, it, all of that is inconsequential. What matters the most is the sincerity in your heart, the sincerity of your heart, and you staying within your lane of competency, not venturing outside to speak about matters that you don't have knowledge about, staying within your lane of competency, sincerely from your heart, and you let Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do the rest. Let Allah do the rest. People say, oh, I wish everybody could hear this. My message is not for everybody. If you are listening, then alhamdulillah, this is what Allah wanted you to hear. I am not for everybody. Don't say you want everybody to hear this because even if they heard it, they still not going to benefit from it because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls his message. Allah knows best where to place his message. 
something that I wish as a young budding student of knowledge, I wish I had someone tell me that. But we were so busy on having the big crowds and coming into the masjid. We're sitting with scholars, scholars who have spent, you know, here again, the tip of the iceberg factor, right? We have the tip of the iceberg factor. We see the tip of the iceberg. We see the success, but we don't see everything that went into that. So we come to Medina from America, from Canada, from Britain, from different places in the West. We go to Saudi Arabia. We sit at the feet of this scholar. We look at all of these students that are sitting in front of him, everybody writing down notes, everybody listening to what he's saying. But we don't realize all of the work that went into this scholar getting to that point. That's the tip of the iceberg issue that many in this day and time suffer from. We see the tip of the iceberg. So we graduate with our university degree. We come back to America. We come back to Canada. We come back to Britain. And we believe that we're going to have the same crowd of people. So we're finagling and we're moving and we're maneuvering and you're politically correcting and we're uh, moving, you know, so that we can position ourselves to come out on top with the big crowd around us. So we backstab this person, we cut this person off, we, you know, this political correctness over here, we got to correct this and change that and move this over here, move that over there, all the while selling your soul the whole entire time. By the time you get to the top and you got all these people listening to you, thousands and thousands of followers on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube, everybody listening to you, everybody following you, but you don't have a soul. You lost your soul along that journey. You sold your soul. You sold your moral compass to get there. And as I said before, to have everything without dignity and honor is to have nothing. How do you live with yourself? How do you live with yourself? How do you put your head down on your pillow at night and live with yourself knowing the things that you have done to get where you are? Yeah, it's real. It's real out here, man. So, uh, Bishr uh, Ibn Hadith, <laughs> Bishr Ibn Hadith, he's praising Imam Ahmed. He said, Imam Ahmed was put into a fire, put into the flame, and he came out gold. <laughs> put into the fire, came out gold. When it reached Imam Ahmed that he said that, when it reached Imam Ahmed that he said that, he said, all praises due to Allah who has made Bishr, a scholar like Bishr Ibn Hadith, pleased with what I have done. The major scholars amongst Imam Ahmed's contemporaries were, you know, kind of just acknowledging that, hey, man, you know, although we didn't have the guts to do what you do, but we see what you did. We see what you did and we recognize what you did. Not that they didn't say, oh, man, you should have just said that the Quran was created and we could have been done with all of this fitna. That's what people in our time do. That's what that's what students of knowledge and scholars, that's what they do in today's time. Right. They condemn you for doing what's right, because this is the inverted society that we live in, where everything that is right is wrong and everything that is wrong is right. So now we talk about Imam Ahmed being finally released from prison. Finally released from prison. قال حدثني ملاح ببغداد اسمه عبد الله عبد الله بن موسى وكان رجلا صالحا من أهل السنة قال كنت أنا وأبي وأهلي من حنبلية الخلص 
وكان أحمد محبوسا مع معتصم فقيل لنا أحمد قد ضرب وخلي وكان بيننا وعند دار الخليفة وبيت أحمد في الحربية بينهما أميال شتى فقمنا عند المساء نبصر أحمد قد تخلص أم لا so, um, Abdullah ibn Musa he was a righteous man from Ahlul Sunnah as, they was, as the narration mentioned he said that I and my father and my family we were from the Hanbali family right we were from the Hanbali family Al-Khulas pure Hanbalis. We are from the Hanbali family. Hanbali, not in terms of following in fiqh, but Hanbali in that that was their family. All right. He said, and Imam Ahmed was uh, in a prison uh, in the uh, palace of Mu'atasim. So it was, rumor started to spread that Imam Ahmed was beat and he was let go. Duriba wa khulya. It was mentioned, this word started to circulate that Imam Ahmed was beaten and then he was released, he was freed. So the place where the Khalifa, where Mu'tasim lived and where Imam Ahmed lived, Amyalin Shekta, there was it was many, many miles in between, right? It's a long distance. So we started to travel during the night so we could reach the area where uh, Mu'tasim lived, where the palace of the Khalifa was. So that we could find out for sure whether or not Imam Ahmed had been let go. All right, how uh, whether this news was true that he was let go or not. And the night was extremely dark. And they finally arrived at the place. Uh, he said, and as me and Imam Ahmed's son, Saleh and Abdullah, we traveling by night, we're going up to where the palace of the, uh, of the Khalifa is to find out whether Imam Ahmed had been released or not. He said, and as we approach, it was very dark. You know, we see a man limping. We see a man limping, barely walking. Uh, and he comes and he says to his son, Abdullah or Saleh, he said, Ya Bunay ta'ala, oh my son, come. He, so Imam Ahmed, he sees his son, sees his sons, his family from a distance, uh, and he was finally released, right? Imam Ahmed's test lasted for four days. I mean, he was incarcerated for a whole period of 30 months, almost three years he was locked up. But the trial period where he was beat and questioned and things like that, that happened over a period of four days. They brought him out. They debated him. They whipped him. They debated him. They whipped him. They debated him. They whipped him. Uh, and each and every time, Imam Ahmed said nothing more than, uh, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, a'atuni shay'an min kitab Allah aw min sunnat al-Rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam hatta aqulla bi. And he would say nothing more than, O leader of the Muslims, give me something from the book of Allah or from the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so that I could, I could agree with you that the Qur'an is created, but you got to give me something. Give me something from the book of Allah or from the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that I can agree with. They never gave him anything. And Mu'tasim finally decided to free Imam Ahmed. Decided to free him. But not until when the family of Imam Ahmed got to uh, the uh, Khalifa's palace, he brought his family, his neighbors out to show that his body was healthy. So, you know, they fixed him up. 
you know, they waited a few days and then they released him. All right. And this was out of fear that there would be backlash for any harm done to his body. This was despite the fact that he's the leader of the Muslims. He has no power. He has no fear. He has total power and sovereignty. But at the same token, the strength of the truth and steadfastness of Imam Ahmed was greater than all of that. He was afraid that, you know, he would be condemned or criticized for having, you know, right. And all of this was being done during the month of Ramadan. Imam Ahmed left prison after 28 months and some say 30 months and returned to his home. And I want, you know, the brothers, uh, perhaps there's brothers from prison listening. Perhaps this message will reach brothers who have been in prison or brothers who are in prison. Um, just something to kind of think about that while you're sitting in a prison cell right now, incarcerated for, for whatever your situation was without being judgmental. But obviously your incarceration has nothing to do with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making sacrifices for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Your incarceration was purely for your benefit and your benefit alone. And we have to think about the things that we sacrifice for. Think about the things that we make sacrifices for, right? Something I want to share with you. Um, something I want to share with you before we uh, so Imam Ahmed ta'ala, he left prison after 28 months some say 30 months and returned to his home in the year 2021 this whole fitna if you remember when we started this whole fitna started in the year 218 218 alright Nine years after the death of Imam Shafi, Imam Shafi died in 209. He conveyed to Imam Ahmed, right? He conveyed to Imam Ahmed, you know, the, the dream that he had. Nine years later, the situation happens, 218, right? The Imam Ahmed was released in the year 221. So it was a total of roughly about, you know, almost three years, man. SubhanAllah, this whole situation went on. And so Imam Ahmed's release, he's back with his family. Imam Ahmed's son, uh, Abdullah, his son Abdullah, he said, Kuntu kathiran asma' walidi yakulu rahimallah Abi Haytham, ghafarallahu li Abi Haytham, afallahu an Abi Haytham. Fakultu ya Abi, man huwa Abu Haytham? Abdullah, the son of Imam Ahmed, he said that when my father came home, he said, I oftentimes would hear him say, may Allah have mercy on Abu Haytham. May Allah forgive Abu Haytham. May Allah pardon Abu Haytham. I used to hear my father say this all the time. And so one time I went to my father and I said, oh, my father, he said, I oftentimes hear you talking about Abu Haytham. Who is Abu Haytham? So his father said to him, um, you don't know who Abu Haytham is? And his son Abdullah said, No. He said, Abu, ha Abu Haytham al Haddad, al Yom al Ladi Kharajtu fihi lil Siyat, wa madetu yadeya lil Iqabain, id anabi insanin, yajdub thobi min warai, yakuruli ta'rifuni, kultula, kala ana Abu Haytham al Ayar lis. مكتوب في الديوان أمير المؤمنين أني ضربت ثمانية عشر ألف صوت 
بالتفاريق والصبرة في ذلك على طاعة الشيطان لأجل الدنيا فاصبر أنت في طاعة الرحمن لأجل الدين سبحان الله He said to his son, do you know who Abu Haytham is? He said, no, I don't know who Abu Haytham is. He said, when I was in prison, right? It's Imam Ahmed telling his son a story of a man that he met in prison. But brothers, I want you to listen to this. If there's any brothers in prison listening, any brothers in prison that may get this message, I want you to listen to this. He said, when I was in prison, I was in prison, there was a man by the name Abu, Abu Haytham. He said, on the day when I was being taken out to be whipped, Right on the day that I was taken out to be whipped, and as I was about to put my arms around the the, the trunk of the tree to you know spread my back so they can beat my back, uh, there was an individual grabbing me from behind, pulling behind, pulling on my garment from behind me. He said, and as I turned around, I asked the per the person asked me, "Ata'arifuni? Do you know who I am?" And Imam Ahmed said, "No, I don't know who you are." He said, "My name is Abu Haytham. I'm a thief. I'm a thief." He said, and it was decreed by the leader of the Muslims that I be lashed, the alf, that I be lashed 18,000 times. I be whipped 18,000 times. Breaking up into pieces, not all at once. It would be, you know, 20 times today, 20 times tomorrow, 30 times the next day, but in total, 18,000 times. It was decreed by the leader of the Muslims that I be lashed 18,000 times. He said, And I was patient with the 18,000 lashes because I was in obedience to the shaitan for my love of the dunya. So you be patient for the sake of Ar-Rahman for the purpose of the deen. If I could deal with 18,000 lashes in obedience to shaitan, chasing after this dunya, you can be patient with whatever lashes they are going to give you for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in pursuit of the religion, in preservation of the religion. SubhanAllah. Imam Ahmed said, فَضُرِبْتُ ثَمَانِيَةَ عَشْرَ صَوْتًا بَدْلَ مَا ضُرِبَ ثَمَانِيَةَ عَشْرَ أَلْفٍ وَخَرْجَ الْخَادِمْ وَقَالَ عَفَا عَنْهُ أَمِيرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ SubhanAllah. He said, Imam Ahmed, so I went on to be beaten 18 times instead of the 18,000 times that he was beaten. He was beaten 18,000 times and he was patient in obedience to shaitan in pursuit of the dunya. How come I can't be patient? <laughs> patient with the 18 lashes that I was given in obedience to Ar-Rahman in pursuit of the deen. Subhanallah. You got to think about who you serve. There's some people out here. I met brothers that go to prison, back and forth to prison, that'll tell you three years. I can do three years in prison standing on my head. Three, three years is nothing. So institutionalized that three years of their lives mean nothing. And they're going to leave prison. They're going to go back out into the world. And they're going to do the same thing over and over and over again until they get tired. Prison does not change anybody. You just get tired. You get tired of going in and out of prison. You get tired of being booked, fingerprinted, 
humiliated. You get tired of being talked down to and disrespected by people who you know if the shoe was on the other foot or if the circumstances was different, then they would be in a more inferior position than you are. I've met people who can do 10 years standing on their head. They did 10 years, come back out for six months and they back in prison again on a parole violation. And it means nothing, they'll do it again. Do a bullet, come home and do the same thing again. And they're doing this in pursuit of the world, in pursuit of the dunya. How is it we can't tolerate a little bit of tests, a little bit of trial in pursuit of the deen? We're so fragile. The smallest little calamity or adversity or misfortune touch us, just breeze past us. You're not even encapsulated by it. You've been touched. Touched by, by a little bit of misfortune. And off we go on our off on our heels. Oh, you know, I'm 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 doing me right now. You know, I'm going through something. I'm struggling. I'm, it's like who's not going through something? Who's not going through something? If you broke and you think you got money, if you think you got problems, then what about people who got real money? They got problems too. You think you're the only one with problems? You think you're the only one going through something? Subhanallah Instead of running from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how about running to Allah? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Fafirru ilallah, run to Allah. Firru ilallah, run to Allah, flee unto God. Flee to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why do you keep running away from him? Why do you keep running away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So as Imam Ahmed is home, he's in his home and, you know, he goes back to, he goes back to, you know, teaching in his masjid. He goes back to his family, you know, getting back on his feet, getting back to some normalcy in his life. Right. So let me show you how he interacted and engaged with some of the scholars who did respond because once the fitna is over, now you got to run into some of these same scholars that were your contemporaries who, um, you know, who responded, who took a different route than you did. And there were some people who Imam Ahmed, you know, forgave, some people he, you know, pardoned, and there were some people who he didn't forgive, some people he didn't pardon. Qala Abu Farj. Uh, Abu Faraj uh, Al-Hendabani Samiatu Qala Samiatu Abu Bakr Al-Marruthi Yaqulu Abu Bakr Al-Marruthi was one of the students of Imam Ahmed also one of the contemporaries during his time he said Ja'a Yahya ibn Ma'in fadakhala ala Ahmed ibn Hanbal wa huwa marid fasallama alayhi falam yaruda alayhi salam Subhanallah Al-Marruthi, he said that Yahya ibn Ma'in, he came to visit Imam Ahmed. Now, Yahya ibn Ma'in, you know, bi jalalat qadrihi wa bi ilmihi, huwa min al-jabal, min uh, Imam uh, Ahlul Sunnah, Imam Ahlul Hadith. 
He's has all of these great titles. He's the, the scholar of Hadith, of the people of Hadith. He's uh, an extreme criticizer of the 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 the, the narrators in, in you know in the chain. You'd be hard pressed uh, if you come across you know uh, a chain of narration. You'd be hard pressed to find one of the narrators in there that wasn't criticized by Yahya ibn Ma'in. Mutashaddit. He was very severe in his criticism of people. Yet, uh, yet and still, Imam uh, Yahya ibn Ma'in was also one of the scholars who say to save his own life, he agreed that the Quran was created. I mean, you got to live with yourself after that. Man. Very hard. Nonetheless, Yahya ibn Ma'in comes by to visit Imam Ahmed. This is after you don't went through, uh, you don't went through everything that you went through, and now, you know, your friends are now coming back to. Now you have to. Now you have to, you know, you engage now with, you know, some of the people who, you know, took a different route. You know, this is the hard part. You know, this is the hard part. Believe it or not, to to look people in the face, and to either choose to forgive them. Or choose not to forgive them. At the end of the day, it's still your choice. You still have a choice to say, hey, you know, I don't like the route that you took. It was a very cowardly route that you took. And as a result of that, I want nothing to do with you. You know, like, you fell from my eyes. Like, I don't even, I don't have that level of reverence for you anymore. You're still a scholar. I don't, you know, take anything away from you. However, in the words of Tupac, you know, I, I, I still want you to eat, just not at my table. You know, right? I don't have anything against you. I just don't want to be a part of you. You know what I mean? I don't have anything against you. You're still a scholar. You still, you know, you're still a good person. Uh, I would never, you know, tear your back out. I would never, you know, disrespect you or backbite you. You know, you understand what I'm saying? But at the same token, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with you. And there are people in my life that I like that right now that, you know, I don't have... I, you know, I have nothing but the utmost respect for them, but I have nothing to do with you. You see the person differently, right? Because you see how they conducted themselves when times got difficult. The, the measure of a man is not where he stands in the words of Martin Luther King. The measure of a man is not where he stands in the times of comfort and convenience. The measure of a man is when he's in the thick of it. When the waves of misfortune and calamity are coming one after another, you understand? And you look at where the person stands in that moment. That's the measure of a man. The measure of a man is not in the, in the times of comfort and convenience. So Yahya ibn Ma'in dakhla ala Imam Ahmed. Yahya ibn Ma'in, he entered upon, the, entered the house of Imam Ahmed, came to visit Imam Ahmed. Imam Ahmed is sick. Imam Ahmed is tired. You know, he just came home from prison. You understand? And Yahya ibn Ma'in, he comes and he gives him the greeting of salam. Salamu alaykum. And Imam Ahmed, falam yarud salam. He didn't even return the salam to him. Imam Ahmed didn't even return the salams to him. وَكَانَ Ahmed قَدْ حَلَفَ بِالْأَهْدِ and the reason why is because Imam Ahmed, Imam Ahmed, he took an oath 
that any scholar who responded to Mu'tasim or Ma'mun that the Quran was created, he took an oath that he would never speak to them until they meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he stood on that. He took an oath to never speak to anyone who agreed to the belief, the false belief that the Quran was created. He took an oath that if you agree to that, don't ever speak to me again until we meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If the scholars had stood up in the beginning, it wouldn't have gotten that far. Absolutely. And Imam Ahmed said that. Many of the scholars said that if they had to just remain firm at the very beginning. He wasn't going to torture everybody. I mean, the threat, obviously, but then you got to call their bluff. You got to call their bluff. And the same thing that I said here in our communities, you know. We ran in our own little corners, hoping that nobody said anything about me. And as long as they're talking about that imam or that student of knowledge or this one, you know, it's fine. Cool. Let them talk about him just as long as he's not talking, as long as they're not talking about me. I just don't want to be talked about. And it's like that till today. Till today with many people, it's like that. They don't want to be talked about. So they stay in their corner. They don't, they don't affiliate or associate with this brother or that brother because, you know, they don't want to tarnish their reputation. They don't want to ruin their brand, right? Because that's what it's about today. It's all about your brand. So I don't want to ruin my brand. So <clears throat> I'll disassociate myself with this brother, not because I think anything is wrong with him, but I just don't want to affiliate or associate with him because I don't want to be guilty by association. And then I get some of the same backlash that he's received, right? This is an individualistic mentality. We are individualists within an ummah. We are not one ummah collectively. We are individuals within an ummah. That is the total opposite of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, how they define the ummah of Islam, the, how they define the ummah of Islam. This is total opposite. We are individuals within the collective body of the Muslim community. If we were truly one ummah, truly one ummah, we would never let a group of individual groups, a group of misfits, spiritual misfits is what they are, come in and begin slandering and tarnishing the honor of this particular scholar and just turn a blind eye to it and say nothing about it. If we were truly one ummah, racism would not exist. If we were truly one ummah, it would never be possible for an Islamic organization to go to one of the poorest cities in America, hold a three-day conference, collect millions of dollars in revenue, and then leave that city and not give any zakat or sadaqah or anything to any of the poor struggling masajid in those environments. If we were truly one ummah, that would never happen. If we were truly one ummah, uh, uh, no imam would be able to get on a mimbar and slander an entire race of people, call them bastard children, call them children of fornication and adultery, on a mimbar, on Friday, on the greatest day of the week, on the day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives all sins, <laughs> except the major ones. If we were truly one ummah, all of these atrocities that we see going on in the Muslim community, that I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects those from amongst our ummah who are new converts, those who are interested in Islam, that he doesn't allow these incidents, these atrocities to chase them away from Islam. But we are in a sad state, man, and I hate to say it like that. 
I hate to say it like that. We are in a sad state. If you think that we are one ummah, you are sadly mistaken. We are individuals within the confines of the ummah, within the, the, within the confines of an ummah, but we are individualists at best. Make no mistake about that. I'm just holding up a mirror to us as an ummah. I'm just holding up the mirror, man. Don't get mad at me for saying it. But all of these atrocities that we see going on, man, subhanAllah, I'm sure many of the Sahaba would be greatly disappointed at us. And there's room for human error. We're going to err. We're going to make mistakes. But this whole idea, this whole concept of one ummah, and we, we got that twisted, man. We got that twisted. That whole concept, man, we got that twisted. You got Muslims running around here talking about, you got Muslim, uh, Muslims running around here talking about, oh, ain't no, ain't no racism in Islam. <laughs> you sound like somebody who says all lives matter. I, I guarantee you, if that person wasn't Muslim, the person who says, oh, there's no racism in Islam, that same individual who says there's no racism, racism in Islam is the same individual if caught slipping would say all lives matter. The same individual. That's the same individual. All lives matter. Yeah, black lives matter, but all lives matter too. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. No racism in Islam. MashaAllah. Tabarakallah. No, there's no racism in Islam. <laughs> but they're damn sure some racist Muslims. I'll tell you that. No, there's no racism in Islam. But you're using that as Ali bin Abi Talib anhu, as he said about the Khawarij when they used to say La hukum illa, illa lillah, that there's no judge except Allah. Ali bin Abi Talib said Kerimatul Haq biha batil, that it is a true statement that there's no judge except Allah. But you only intend by that to dismiss my rule as the leader, as the Khalifa. When you say there's no judge except Allah, only Allah can judge me, you're saying that. And although that is true, but you're using it in a way to dismiss my authority over you. You understand? When the Khawadis said there's no judge, there's no judge except God. Only God can judge us. That's a true statement. But they only intended by it to dismiss the leadership of Ali bin Abi Talib. Understand, words have context. So when you say, oh, there's no racism in Islam, what you're really saying, what you're really saying is that all of the people who ever said that they're racist, racist Muslims or they're, they're lying, it doesn't exist. They're lying, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as racism. So that means that whatever racist experience that you had in your life, I'm just gonna completely dismiss that and tell you that there's no racism in Islam. So it's the ultimate mind freak. So it's to make you believe that whatever negative experience you had with somebody that felt like racism, it really wasn't racism because there's no racism in Islam. It really wasn't racism. So you need to check your, your belief and your understanding of racism because that wasn't racism. No matter how racist it was, <laughs> it's dismissive. Here again, the, the spiritual gaslighting, right? No racism in Islam, I got you. So the interaction that I just had with this racist Muslim, right? So it's all a figment of my imagination, right? 
It's all a figment of my imagination, correct? Got it. So Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, He did not give Yahya bin Ma'in the salams. He didn't return to salams to him. And he said because he took an oath that anyone, any scholar who answered, who answered that the Quran is created, then he would not speak to him until he meted, he meet until they met Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. فَمَا يَزَالُ يَعْذِرُ يَعْتَذِرُ وَيَقُولُ حَدِيثُ أَمَّارُ حَدِيثُ أَمَّارُ So Yahya ibn Ma'in, he's still coming to Imam Ahmed like, yo, salamu alaykum, come on, man, speak to me. And he continues to try to get Imam Ahmed to talk to him. And he's using, he's using the hadith of Ammar ibn Yasir, right? The hadith of Ammar ibn Yasir as his delil, as his proof that he's justified for saying that the Quran was created. Does anybody know the hadith of Ammar? What happened to Ammar ibn Yasir? What happened to Ammar ibn Yasir? This, the... If you look at the tafsir, I don't know. I gave you the ayat. I wonder if anybody ever went back and read the tafsir of the ayat. I told you that ayats from the Quran have stories behind them. Ayats and hadith, they have uh, ayats, they have stories behind them. So surah number 16, ayat 106. Did anybody look at the tafsir of that ayat? And to find out why that ayat was revealed, that ayat was revealed about Ahmad ibn Yasir. Yasid and Sumayyah were both martyred. Sumayyah was the first martyr in Islam, right? She was killed by Abu Jahl, right? And so was her husband, Yasir. They left behind a son, Ammar, uh, who went on to become a great, uh, a great warrior, great scholar of the Sahaba. Uh, but an incident happened with Ammar. Does anybody know what that incident was that caused that ayah to be revealed? Quraysh kidnapped Ammar, right? They kidnapped him. And they tried to get him to say something negative about the Prophet ﷺ, say something bad about him. And they threatened, right? And he was tortured, right? And he was to say that the Prophet ﷺ was a liar, right? And they told Ammar that they would kill him if he didn't do this. And he said it, and they got what they wanted. And when Ammar went back to the Prophet Sallallahu he said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, they kidnapped me, they tortured me, and they told me that if I didn't say this about you, then they would kill me. I, 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 don't, I can't even repeat what I said about you. I, I don't even want to repeat it. And the Prophet ﷺ never asked Ammar what he said. He never cared. He never asked him what he said. He asked him, he asked Ammar, How did you find your heart in that moment? When you said what you said about me. And this is something that when people come to you to apologize, like, yo, I said this about, how did you find your heart at the moment when you said that about me? How did you find your heart? When you said what you said about me, how did you find your heart? And he said that I felt my heart filled with faith. I hated, I hated the fact that I had to say that about you. And the Prophet said, فعود, He said, and if they do it to you again, then do it again. If they kidnap you and they make you say something bad about me again, say it again. I don't care. 
as long as your heart is content with true faith, as long as you know that you hate it in your heart that you had to say that, it's fine. And Allah reveals the ayah exonerating Ammar, letting you know that these ayats, they have context, they have history behind them. History behind these ayats. These are not ayats people just jump, jump out there, throw around, you know what I mean, to make themselves look intelligent and looking smart. These have context, it has stories behind this. Allah revealed the ayah, Except a person who is forced under compulsion while his heart, while his heart is content with true faith, never wavering in his faith. That ayat revealed about Ammar. SubhanAllah. So powerful, man. The Prophet وسلم, he never even asked Ammar what he said. He never even asked him what he said. He asked him the most important question. How did you find your heart in the moment when you said what you said about me? How did you find your heart when you said what you said about me? He said, I hated it. I hated the fact that I had to say it. My heart was filled with faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, for in adu fa'ud. He said, if they do it to you again, then say it again. Because it doesn't harm you. And so Yahya ibn Ma'in is asking Imam Ahmed for forgiveness based upon the hadith of Ammar. He said, hadith al-Ammar, hadith al-Ammar. Like, you're going to keep holding me accountable. You're not going to give me the greeting of the salam. What about the hadith of Ammar? These are scholars going back and forth. And it's so beautiful how they use the ayats and hadith. It's so beautiful. It's almost like, it's not even like a scholarly thing. It's just like, it's a part of their life. It's like a part of their history, you know? And this is the point that we want to get to in our lives with Islam, that Islam is not something that we practice. Islam is something that we live. Like what happened to Ahmad and what happened here, what happened there? It's almost like that's part of something that happened to our family, right? You know how you're telling family stories? <laughs> You know how you tell family stories and you say, you know, oh, you remember what happened to cousin so-and-so or remember what happened to auntie so-and-so. And, you know, you're, you're telling these stories as if these are families. When we're reading these lives of the Sahaba, we're reading these incidents, we're talking about them as if they're part of our family, as if we were there when these incidents happened. We were there when these incidents happened. And they're, they're, they're using these texts as they're communicating with one another as if this is this is their life. It's not religion. They're not quoting this religiously. They're quoting this as, you know, I'm trying to get you to pardon me. And I'm telling you in this moment, look at the hadith of Ammar, like how the Prophet Sallallahu pardoned Ammar. And when Imam Ahmed didn't budge, because as I said before, the dalil is not enough. The hadith and ayat is not enough. Like you got to be able to pull out from the ayat and hadith, you know what I mean, to, you know, to, to prove your point. فَقَلَبَ أَحْمَدْ وَجْهَهُ إِلَى جَنَبِ الْآخَرُ So the Prophet, so Imam Ahmed turned his face away from him, not giving him the greeting of Islam. He's like, well, what about the hadith of Ammar? Ahmed turns away from him. Go. فَقَالَ يَحْيَى لَا يَقْبَلْ عُذْرًا So you don't, you don't accept my excuse? You're not accepting my excuse? You're not going to excuse me? فَخَرَجْتُ بَعْدَهُ وَهُوَ جَالِسٌ عَلَى الْبَابِ فَقَالَ إِشْ قَالَ أَحْمَدْ بَعْدِي so Yahya ibn Ma'in, he left. And Marudi, Abu Bakr Marudi, another scholar, he left out behind a little bit after Yahya ibn Ma'in left out. 
then Abu Bakr and Marudi went out. So when he came and he sat next to Yahya bin Ma'in, Yahya asked him, Ish qala Ahmed ba'di? What did Imam Ahmed, for those who say Ish is not, you know, Fusha, it's Fusha. These are scholars and they're, they're speaking Fusha uh, and they're using Ish, which is a combination of Ayu Shay. Just Mudgham. Mudghama. These, these words are put in together. So rather than saying, Ayu Shay'in Qala Ahmed, say, Ish Qala Ahmed Ba'di. What did Ahmed say after that, right? For those of you who've lived in the Arab world, you've heard the word ish multiple times, all right? Ishgal, what'd you say? If Arab says that to you, they're asking you, what did you say? Ish, right? So uh, Abu Bakr al-Marudi, he leaves out and he goes behind Yahya ibn Ma'in. Yahya ibn Ma'in, he says to Abu Bakr, what did Imam Ahmed say about me after I left? Because I know he said something about it. These are contemporaries. They're friends, but, you know, there's some, some tension between them because Imam Ahmed didn't like the fact that Yahya ibn Ma'in and his, you know, his status as a scholar, that you would, you would give in to this situation. You would cower, you know, in front of the whip like that. So he asked Abu Bakr, what did Ahmed say after I left? I know he said something about what did he say after I left? And he said, So he asked Abu Bakr, what did, Imam, what did Ahmed say after I left? <laughs> so Abu Bakr says to him, He gonna come in here, give me the greeting of salam, and then when I don't return the greeting of salam, he gonna use the hadith of Ammar against me. He gonna use the hadith of Ammar against me. He said in the hadith of Ammar, it was mentioned that Ammar walked past some of Quraysh who were insulting the Prophet and Ammar stood up to stop them from insulting him and they beat him. How about that? He forgot that part of the hadith. They beat him. And it was said to Yahya ibn Ma'in, Nuridu an nadribakum. We're going to beat you if you don't say the Quran was created. And what does Yahya ibn Ma'in do? He gives in to the statement that the Quran is created. So don't use the hadith of Ammar. So Yahya ibn Ma'in turns around and he goes back in and he says to Imam Ahmed, He said, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive you. May Allah forgive you, Ahmed. And he said, Wallahi, I don't know a man under the heaven of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, under the heaven of God, who was more knowledgeable about this religion than you. He still praised him. Even though Imam Ahmed was mad at him, even though Imam Ahmed was upset with him, he went in and he said, I don't know anyone under God's heaven that is more knowledgeable, more understanding of this religion than you. SubhanAllah, I use the hadith of Ammar, one portion of it. You brought the whole hadith of Ammar and you brought a portion of it that I overlooked to admonish me. 
that you're you that I'm using the hadith of Ammar to say that the Prophet forgave him, but you looked at the whole hadith of Ammar and said at least Ammar jumped up to Quraysh to stop them from you know from slandering the Prophet وسلم, and they beat him. At least Ammar was beat first. You didn't go through any beating. You didn't even tolerate being whipped. Subhanallah. So it shows you that sometimes a person brings a hadith, they're looking at it from one angle, one perspective, and then there's another person who looks at the whole hadith and kind of shows you where you erred in your understanding of the hadith. Subhanallah. But Imam Ahmed's fitna is not over because uh, maybe 10 years after this, mind you, Imam Ahmed around this time is roughly 57 years old, right? 57 years old. 10 years after this, uh, Mu'tasim dies and his brother takes the position of leader of the Muslims, Al-Wathiq. Al-Wathiq. Al-Wathiq now is going to follow in the footsteps of his brother, as we will see Friday, inshallah ta'ala. And he turns the heat back up on Imam Ahmed. He kicks Imam Ahmed out of Baghdad. Imam Ahmed is not allowed to live in Baghdad. Imam Ahmed is not allowed to give lectures. Imam Ahmed is not allowed to give any advice. Imam Ahmed is not allowed to teach. Imam Ahmed, he said, I don't even want to see you. Whatever city I'm in, you make sure you're in the next city. And he actually sent some of his troops, some of his troops out to look for Imam Ahmed. So his fitna actually doesn't even stop. It doesn't stop there. Because the next leader of the Muslims who comes in, takes over, picks up where Mu'tasim lifts off, and his trial starts all over again. Imam Ahmed literally goes on the run. SubhanAllah. Imam Ahmed literally goes on the run. Inshallah, we'll pick up on Friday, inshallah. Friday will be our last class. That will be our final class, inshallah, for this series. Um, I pray that, you know, um, you guys have found some benefit in this. Uh, I know I did. Uh, even reading this, this is not my first, second, third time reading this story, but every time feels like the first time. Every time feels like the first time. Um I hope that you know you guys got some benefit from this. Uh, my my job is not to you know to rehash you know uh, any old uh, memories that have, have you know things that have happened in our communities. I know sometimes it may come off as oh he's bitter or he's angry or he's bitter because that's what people will say to dismiss my pain to dismiss the pain of the community. Oh, get over it. It's like a person abused you and then they turn to a new theme and leave you stuck with the pain. And then when you start to get healing from your trauma, you know, they're condemning you from even getting healing from your trauma because, you know, you're not allowed to heal. Our communities are, you know, still trying to heal from a lot of the pain, a lot of, you know, the trauma that was caused to our communities from probably... 1998 to about 2018, you know, we're talking about a 20 year span, you know, of just constant trauma in our communities, you know, um, and the trauma still hasn't stopped. 
within that 20 year span, think about how many women were divorced. Think about how many children were born. Think about how many children right now are adults that were products of, you know, that movement, products of that time. You know, women were married and divorced, married and divorced. Children were born into this world, you know, to fathers who, you know, claimed a particular aqidah, claimed a particular minhaj. And, you know, unfortunately, that methodology and minhaj had nothing to do with raising children, right? Had nothing to do with raising children, raising families. It was all minhaj, ahlu bid'ah, the people of innovation, this, this, this. That's what it was all about. Had nothing to do with raising children, had nothing to do with help producing, uh, nurturing, healthy, happy families and communities. It had nothing to do with anything, any of that. And yes, it is still happening, unfortunately. It is still happening. And so much damage was done to our communities. And, you know, scholars just kind of moved on as if nothing ever happened. You don't ever hear anybody addressing any of this, you know. You don't hear anybody helping people heal from a lot of this stuff. It's just like we just continue moving like nothing ever happened, you know. And I'm sorry. I'm one of those people. I have a high sense of justice, you know, much like Umar bin al-Khattab, I don't like oppression. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't like oppression. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't like oppression, as well as in the UK and in Canada. Every single place that movement touched, it destroyed. Everything it touched, it destroyed. Every single place, every single thing it touched, it destroyed. There was no accountability. There was no accountability. Nobody's accountable. Children that were born during that era, during that time, by many of these brothers, those children never had any fathers. These women were kind of left to raise the children by themselves. And some of the women were just as bad as well. I can't put it all on the brothers because some of the women were just as bad, just as a part of that movement, just as a part of that movement as many of the brothers were. And many of them were very rigid and very hard on their children, many of whom are not even Muslim or practicing Muslims today. You want your children to wear their pants above their ankles. You want your children to wear thobes every day. You want to label everybody Muslim, kafir, this kufar, this Muslim. That's how you see the world. The world is either black and white. You're either Muslim or Salafi or on the hawk and the minhaj, or you're not, or you're kafir, you're muqtadir, you're an innovator, you're this, you're Sufi, Shi'i, Fulani, Fulani. That's, that's how you see the world. And you tried to impose that on your children, and unfortunately, your children rejected it. And now those children are kind of lost in the world trying to figure out, you know, where do they fit in? They were born and raised Muslim to a Muslim mother who was very rigid, very extreme, and a Muslim father who they never even saw. You have children in our ummah that exist under that condition right now, right now under that condition, under that circumstance. How do we invite them back to Islam? How do we bring them back to Islam? How, what, what is the healing process? How do we help them heal from all the damage that was done? How? Just to move on like nothing ever happened? Or do we have to kind of, you know, kind of go backward to go forward? We have to go backward to go forward. So my job is not, you know, I'm, I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm not mad. I'm not upset. 
I, I am pissed off at the fact that we wasted 25 years, you know, and not much has become of us as a result of that. And I'm turning, I'm talking about our economic stability, our spiritual stability, or even our emotional and mental stability. You understand? We, we haven't achieved much. And I'm talking about African-American Muslims. We, we haven't really achieved much. Not all African-American Muslims, because you'll have African-American Muslims who say that they were never part of the Salafi movement. They were never a part of this. They had nothing to do with this. They were like the, you know, they were like the Cosbys of the black Muslim experience. MashaAllah. So then we're not talking to you. You grew up. Uh, the War of Dean community, or you grew up on this community or that community, and y'all sat back and watched the Salafis and all of the shenanigans that went on from the outside, like everybody was stupid. Got it. Got it. You were the Cosbys of the Black Muslim experience. Got it. Then I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of us who have been traumatized, right? Who have been persecuted by this understanding that everything had to be filtered through a handful of scholars from Saudi Arabia. Everything down to the way that we dressed, everything down to the way that we talked, everything down to the scholars we took from, everything down to the imams that we listened to, the masajid that we went to. That was traumatizing. It was. And many people still have not recovered from that. Many have not healed from that. And if I can present some information that will help us to see the situation and make connections so as to help never to fall into a situation like that again, then I'm going to do my part. And you can call me bitter. You can call me angry. You can call, oh, he's still talking about this stuff. You can say whatever you want to say. This is not for you. It's not for you. So, inshallah, Friday will be our last class. Be itni lahi ta'ala. Jazakumallahu khayran. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you all. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa salam al-tasliman kathira. Wa akhiru da'wana anil hamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.